A Passover Seder in the White House. Look at those round, traditional, handmade matzahs. A Passover Seder in the White House. What are these people doing? They're dipping their fingers into the cup of wine. Why are they getting why are they getting their fingers wet with wine? Hmm. The Passover Seder is coming up this Friday evening, April 15th. Today we'll dedicate our lesson towards some of the interesting and wondrous things we do at the Passover Seder. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m., time for Lunch and Learn, titled Seder Secrets. Just like in the White House, Jewish people, millions of Jewish people around the world will be celebrating the Seder this Friday night, as well as after Shabbos, Motzei Shabbos, Saturday night, the second Seder. And one of the interesting things that we do is we spill some wine and we dip our fingers into wine during the Haggadah, during the story. Why do we do that? Why do we spill out some wine? Why do we dip our finger into a cup of wine and get our fingers wet? That's one of the questions we'll talk about. How about the song Dayenu? Dai, 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 Dayenu. What does Dayenu actually mean? And some other interesting things that we'll touch upon in today's lesson. Good afternoon, Amy and Jody and Roy and everybody joining on for our weekly Lunch and Learn. Today is Lunch and Learn number 160. Hello, Howie. Nice to see you on. We're getting ready to begin. And... We'll say a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malach Olam Shalakol Niyab B'Dvaroi. It's time to bring up some Passover memories. Remember, searching or finding and finding the Afikoman. Why do we hide the Afikoman, that piece of matzah? Why do we hide it? What's the significance of the hidden matzah? And some other interesting rituals that we do on this night. We'll touch upon today. Some of the things that usually does not really get explained. And we'll try to take a look at this from uh, Torah sources. As we do every week using Torah, Talmud, Midrash, a bit of Kabbalah and Hasidus. Today is a special day. It's the day that the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1902 was born to his parents in the city of Nikolaev or Mikolaev, Mikolaev in the Ukraine. Later he lived in Dnepropetrovsk, now known as Dnipro. Today is a special day. We thank God for gifting our generation with such a special neshama. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little later. But let's begin our lunch and learn. Today's lesson is divided into four sections, each touching upon another custom or tradition at the Seder, calling this lesson Seder Secrets. And on this post, there is a link to today's source sheet. Or it's in your email inbox. You can download, print it out, follow along with today's lesson. We don't want to pass over Passover. Passover is around the corner. It's in just a couple of days. We want to be present. We want to be there and understand as much as we can what's going on. We don't want to let it slip by and just pass over us. So here we go. Hopefully this will get us a bit of an insight and a some inspiration for this holiday marking 3,334 years since the Exodus. This is a tradition that Jewish people have been doing for thousands of years. 
our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and Passover is a time to continue the chain to the next generation, to our children, to your grandchildren, perhaps great-grandchildren, and for some, great-great-grandchildren. Here we go, source number one. This section is titled, Drop, the drops of wine that exit, that get spilled out of our cups of wine at the Seder table. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to put them in the comment box and we'll get to it. Let's take a step back before we get to actually spilling the wine. Source number one. We can take another look at this picture here. Even in the White House, they do things correctly. They, uh, what's this guy's name? Uh, Mr. Obama is dipping his finger into the cup of wine. See a nice keeper over there. Um... So before we explain that, let's take a step back. Why do we have wine at the Seder? On the Seder night, we have many mitzvahs to do. And one of them is to drink four cups of wine, as we see uh, in the Code of Maimonides. Source number one, every person must drink this night. On the first night of Passover, we do so on the second night as well, to drink four cups of wine. Not to take a sip of wine, but to drink a cup. doesn't have to be a full cup, but between uh, about three ounces of wine. Each cup should consist of three ounces of wine. Okay, we're back. The connection was not too good. So <clears throat> these cups should be... Hello, Jack. These cups should be... Um, doesn't have to be a large cup, but each of these cups should... Um, be drunk on the night of Pesach. Continuing in source number one, if one drank all four cups at once, he has not fulfilled the obligation. Rather, we recite the Kiddush over the first cup, the Exodus story over the second cup, grace after meals on the third, and Psalms called Hallel over the fourth. So the simple reason why we have four cups of wine at the Seder, not just one like on Friday nights, this night we have four cups of wine, and by the way, it's not just for the men, it's for the women and children. If they can't handle the wine, we give them grape juice. Four cups. Why? Each of the cups has a special mitzvah being done over the cup. The first is Kiddush. So one cannot just take four cups of wine and down them. That way one does not fulfill this mitzvah. If one is wishing to fulfill this mitzvah, it must be done in a seder. Seder means in an orderly fashion. That's why it's called seder. There's an order. The first cup, we make the blessing of Kiddush, talking about the sanctity of the day, talking about the holiday, and then we drink the first cup. Later on, we pour the second cup and we say the Haggadah, which means the telling, the recounting of the story of the Exodus, the bondage, the enslavement, the freedom, the ten plagues, and then we drink the second cup. The third cup is after we washed for matzah and we had matzah and the meal and it's time to bench, it's time for grace after meals and we do the third cup over that blessing. And the fourth cup, we pour it and we say halal, we say the last, we say chapters of Psalms praising God for the miracles of that time and we drink the fourth cup. That is how one fulfills the mitzvah. Now, the Midrash tells us something deeper, source number two. In the Torah, in the book of Exodus, in the words that God spoke to Moses to convey to the Jewish people, there are four expressions of redemption. As we see, source number two, I will free you from the labors of the Egyptians and rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and I will take you to be my people. 
And these four expressions representing four independent phases of the redemption. Number one, the burden of slavery was removed. Two, emancipation from the Egyptian government. Three, splitting of the sea. And four, the giving of the Torah. God said four expressions of redemption which represented four phases of the redemption. For example, while they were still in Egypt, it took a good couple of months for the ten plagues to take place. It was about a month per plague. There were three weeks of warning and the final week of the actual plague. And during the months of the plague, the Jews were not enslaved as much or at all. That was the first phase. But they were still in Egypt. They were still slaves, but not uh, as intense with harsh labor. Then came the actual um, emancipation. They left the country of Egypt. But then the Egyptians ran after them, chased after them. And then there was a miracle of the splitting of the sea. And finally, the full and true freedom was when they became God's people officially at Mount Sinai, God, the give, with the giving of the Torah. So the four cups of wine. Wine is, as we studied last week, is a uh, prominent beverage, a royal beverage, a special kind of drink. And we drink the four cups of wine representing the royalty, representing that we're no more slaves. Four cups corresponding to the four expressions of redemption, which correspond to the four phases of the redemption. And by the way, when we drink these four cups of wine, we recline to the left. As in days of old, noblemen and kings would recline. They would have these couches when they would eat and drink. And we do so to demonstrate our freedom on this night. Now, let's get to the question at hand. Hello, Stan. Why do we spill or take drops of wine, making our fingers wet from the cup? So let's take a look at source number three. This refers to the second cup on which we say, we recount, we tell the story of the Exodus. Source number three, it is customary to sprinkle a bit of wine, of the wine of from one's cup when he reaches the phrase blood, fire, and columns of smoke, as well as when he mentions the ten plagues by name, and when he mentions them in groupings, sprinkling a bit of wine for each word, sprinkling a total of 16 times. So when we talk about the ten plagues, we talk about the blood, the fire, and the columns of smoke, and all of the, the balagan that was raining down onto the Egyptians. 16 times mentioning these words, another drop of wine is removed, is spilled, is sprinkled out of the cup. This is the second cup. Some use their finger, some use their ring finger, some use their pointing finger, and some don't use their fingers at all. They just pick up the cup and pour out a drop of wine. But the idea is that a bit of wine should leave the cup. And the question is, why? So here are two ideas. Number one, and source number four, drop by drop, this is from the Baal Shem Tov, drop by drop, the wine in the cup is lessened, just as the Egyptians were diminished by the plagues, symbolizing that the power of those who harm our people be similarly curtailed. It's not time to drink the cup yet. We're still in the middle of the story. Only after we finish the whole story of the Exodus, that's when we drink the cup. But while we're talking about the downfall of the Egyptians, one plague after another plague, each one crushing them more and more, them, their, their homes, their, their crops, their animals, their source of water, and this and that, one at a time, they got weaker and weaker, more crushed, 
until eventually after the set, the tenth plague and the splitting of the sea, they were totally decimated. Totally um, not just neutralized, but the Jews were totally freed from them. So just like the Egyptians were slowly, drop by drop, bit by bit, they were lessened, that is represented by the drops of wine. We're not going to drink the whole cup. We, we, we still need a full cup, so we take out a little bit of wine, a little bit of wine, one plague, another plague, sort of representing what it was accomplished, how they were diminished, just like the wine is being diminished from the cup. And that is similar, what we're, what we're symbolizing is that in every generation, there are those who harm, there are those who are out to harm, whether they, they want to harm, and they actually harm, who, God forbid, what's happening now in certain parts of the world, there are people are, that are, there are places that are, people are under attack, our people are under attack, and by lessening the wine, drop by drop, we are requesting, we are asking God that uh, those that have the power to harm us, their power should be curtailed, their power should be diminished. That is on a basic level. What's the significance of the number 16? That we drop, drip, the drops of wine are removed 16 times. Here's a bit of Kabbalah, and then we'll get to uh, something a bit more practical. Source 5, the Hebrew letters Vav and Yud have the numerical value of 16. Vav has the gematria, the number of 6, and Yud is 10. 10 plus 6 is 16. That is exactly the amount of times we pour the wine out. And thus recall the sword of God that is called Yo-Hach. Yo is Yud and Vav. And Hach means to hit. The sword of God. This is the name of the angel charged with executing vengeance. Yo-Hach. Yud and Vav is 16. And Hach means to hit. The 16 and hitting, the 16 and spilling, this, is, this represents... Uh, the spiritual idea of what happened here, that God dispatches angels. God has different uh, sort of ministering angels for healing, for rain, for different things. And the one that was dispatched to uh, bring on the ten plagues was Yohach. Yud and Vav, the sixteen is hitting. So the sixteen drops of wine represents the spiritual energy, the angel of God that carried out these plagues. But there's something deeper here, which, you know, the Seder, every step of the Seder is not just reminiscent of what happened, but it, has, it contains messages, timely messages for us today. Source 16, the verse says in Proverbs, King Solomon says, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice. It's your enemy, and you may be suffering from the enemy, and when the enemy is has fallen, do not rejoice. You can rejoice for your salvation, for your serenity, for your uh, calmness. But for the downfall of the enemy, do not rejoice. Although we are celebrating our nation's exodus from Egypt, we spill a bit of wine to demonstrate that our joy is not complete since it came at the expense of others. Even if they, if they were deserving of punishment. It is true. The Egyptians, the Torah records, they went beyond the letter of the law in enslaving and torturing the Jewish people. Just to give an example, the Midrash says that when Pharaoh had leprosy, he had a skin condition, he bathed in the blood of Jewish babies, slaughtering 150 in the morning and 150 in the evening. Terrible description that the Midrash tells us. 
And yet, on the night of our salvation, on the night of Pesach, when 3,334 years ago our ancestors were emancipated from Egypt and all the, the, the suffering and torture that the Jewish people went through, says the verse, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. We rejoice in our salvation. But by pouring the wine, the wine that we're drinking, the royal drink of celebration, we pour a little bit of wine because God's creatures were, were, um, had to be put to death, had to, had to go through suffering as a result of this whole story, as a result of their bad choices. It's like we break a cup at a chuppah, it's a wedding ceremony, it's a celebration, and yet we remember that our joy is not complete. Because we are not yet reunited altogether, all the Jewish people, with the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So we smash a glass to elicit a bit of pain or elicit some um, sorrow that our, our joy is not complete. And in a similar idea here, we're drinking wine, we're celebrating, we're reclining. But we remember that it was also a time of sadness for some people, maybe because of their bad choices. You know, in a, in a Jewish court, in Temple Times, uh, when a Jewish court rarely had to punish with execution or other, it was a very serious day. They had to fast that day, the sages. It was a sad day that this had to happen. Someone had to be uh, executed for their wrongdoings, for murder, whatever it was. It was a very serious situation. I believe they were not allowed to drink wine. I've got to check that up. But it was a, a serious day. And even though there are enemies, the Egyptians, in the story of Passover, we spill a bit of the wine to demonstrate that, unfortunately, there will have to be a loss of life or there had to be suffering on the, uh, from the, on the Egyptian side on this night, the night of the tenth plague. Okay, that explains our many, many more. The Haggadah is one of the most printed Jewish books. Throughout our history, over 3,000 years, sages throughout the, throughout the years have compiled, have authored commentaries and explanations, insights into the Haggadah, into the rituals and the, uh, the mitzvahs of this night. There are so many things that we can tap into. So here we just have a couple of ideas. Um, What's the message behind the pouring of the wine? So this Friday night, when we pour out our wine, we remember those that are suffering. We remember that our joy is incomplete. And we'll ask God that just as the wine is being diminished and the Egyptians were diminished, the power of those that are out to destruct, that are out to harm others, and our people should be curtailed. Let's move on to our second section, titled Song. So, Little Sam comes home from Hebrew school and he tells his parents what he studied. He said there was this big, mighty giant of a man. His name was Moses. And he came to the king Pharaoh. He beat him up with his strong muscles. And while he was holding him down, the Jewish people escaped. And they came to the sea and they built a bridge and they crossed over the water and they, then they blew up the bridge and the Egyptians drowned. And the parents say, really? Is that what your Hebrew school teacher taught you? And Sam says, no. But if I told you what he really taught us, you would never believe it. 
The story of the Exodus is quite miraculous. And on this night, there is a mitzvah to recount the story. How is this done? With a seder, in an orderly fashion, like the word siddur. Siddur means an order, the order of prayer, because a siddur prayer book tells us exactly what to say in the morning, what to say here, what to say there. So a seder, there's an order. And source number seven tells us, we'll talk about some of the songs of the seder. The first song that we sing at the seder goes like this. Those are the 15 steps of the Seder. And that's the first song we sing. And these songs, these, these words, Kaddish, Orchat, Kaddish means to make Kiddish, Orchat, we wash our hands, Karpas, we dip the vegetable into salt water, and so on. These 15 steps, source number 7, each feature of the Seder's proceeding, proceedings speaks a certain message to us. There are 15 important signposts that will help us to chart the precarious path from personal exile to redemption. As mentioned, Passover, the Seder night, every year we're not just remembering, we're not merely commemorating what happened years ago, but it is a living experience. We each have our personal Egypt. We have a, things that, that um, enslave us, our habits, things that we're used to. It's not just a night of history. Hello, Mark, and hello, Neil. Passover on Friday night is not just a night of history. You want history? Watch the History Channel. Torah, Passover, it's not about history. Because history is his story. There's no such word in Hebrew for history. History in English is his story. It's somebody else's story. They were in Egypt and we're just talking about somebody else's story. In Hebrew, you might say uh, memories or uh, to, to recount, to recall. Memories. The first letter of memory is M, and the last letter is a Y, because it's my story. It's not his story, it's my story. Passover is about my story. What is my Egypt? What could I define as something that limits me, that inhibits my growth? Spiritual growth, of, uh, mainly, that's what we're talking about tonight. And the night of Passover is a night where it is an opportune time for us to leave our personal bondage and to break forth, to grow and as they left Egypt to get closer to Mount Sinai, to get closer to God, to become better, to improve. And that is by the steps of the Seder. Each of the 15 steps of the Seder is another step which contains a message, not just a ritual. Each step contains a message for us to grow, to us, for us to leave our personal Egypt. Another song, source number A, go after we dip the vegetable into salt water, it is time to pour over the fourth, the second cup, and Magid, to tell over the story, which begins with, Ma nishtana halayla hazeh mikol halaylos halayla hazeh halayla hazeh Mikol Ma nishtana means what 
is different. Why is this night, Alayla Hazel, Alayla means night. Why is Hazel this night different? Mikola Leila from all other nights. Why on this night are we dipping so many times? Why are we eating matzah and our bread? Why are we reclining? Why are we eating bitter herbs? These are the questions that are asked. Who asks the questions? If there's a child there, the children ask the questions to the parents. If there's no children, the spouse asks, we ask each other. If there's no spouse, we ask yourself. The, the, why? Why does it have to come in a question? Why don't we just say the answer? Let's just say the story. We were slaves in Egypt and we were free. Why says the Torah, here is this, another mitzvah of this night, source 8, when your child will ask you, tell your child, we were slaves to Pharaoh. Avadim ayinu, ayinu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord took us out with a strong hand. The Lord gave signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. God says, you guys witness this in Egypt. Tell this to your children. Not every day biblical miracles of biblical abortion happen. You guys were an eyewitness. Tell your children and your children will tell their children. Until today, 3,334 years later, we're telling the story. We're hearing the story from our parents and our grandparents and telling it over to our children. The mitzvah is to get the children involved, to have interaction. So we do things at the Seder night to... Get the children's attention to them, for them to ask questions. And we formulate four questions for them to ask. They're involved over here. The children are a key player in the Passover Seder because Passover is about telling our children. Haggadah means to tell the story to our children. They ask the questions. They sing the Manishtana. And then we tell them the answer. And we do things throughout the Seder differently than usual to get their attention so they should be involved and hear the answer that then when they grow up, they should be able to lead a Seder and tell it to their children. Next song that we sing at the Seder as we recount the story, after we pour out the wine and the ten plagues, we sing a song. Hello, Alex. Dayeno. What does Dayeno mean? Die. In Hebrew, die, 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 die means enough. Dayeno, it would suffice us. It would be enough. We say there's 15 stanzas that we sing a song, sort of like a, like a hymn or a poem, I guess, or some sort of... Uh, song that we say if God would have taken us out of Egypt but he didn't kill their firstborns of the Egyptians it would suffice us and if God killed the firstborn but he didn't give us all the riches that would suffice us if he took us to, out of Egypt but he didn't split the sea that would suffice if he split the sea but he didn't make it dry and we go on to say if he gave us the, brought us to Mount Sinai and he didn't give us the Torah it would suffice us if he, and we go on thanking God for each step of the way and then we say Dayenu after each time. Dayenu, it would suffice. It would be enough. Look, well, what a kind and generous, benevolent God that not just He took us out of Egypt, but He did this and He did that and He did that and He did that. Now, the truth is that if He took us out of Egypt, but He didn't split the sea, we would be doomed. So what would have helped to take us out of Egypt if we would be stuck at the sea and the Egyptians would capture us and take us back to Egypt? What would it help? 
And what would it help to bring us to Mount Sinai and not give us a Torah? What's the point of that? But, nonetheless, each step of the way is significant. Each step of the way deserves a special thank you, a special recognition and acknowledgement. Source number nine, stop and notice the greatness of each and every part. We don't just say thank you for the potato kugel. We say thank you for buying the potatoes, thank you for peeling the potatoes, thank you for cooking the potatoes, thank you for shredding the potatoes. Each step of the way is significant. The splitting of the sea itself was a tremendous miracle. Appreciate appreciate it for what it was, regardless of the next step in the progression. Okay, you split the sea, and then the next thing is for drowning the Egyptians and doing away with our enemies. But one thing at a time, each step of the way is significant. Right now we're thinking in this stanza, we're thanking God for this step of the way, for splitting of the sea, regardless of what the next step in the progression the song Dayenu teaches us how to achieve the quintessential virtue of gratitude. Focus, really focus on each individual blessing you are given. Regardless of what came before it or after it, to be, grat- to be grateful is to focus on the details, every step what we have. We have a mouth that can speak, we have ears that can hear, we have teeth. Yeah, we don't just thank God for life. Every detail We focus in and that helps us really feel grateful for the things that we have and not focus on all the things that we may not yet have. Dayenu says, let's break this up. Let's break this down. Let's take it apart. What exactly? Not just, thank you God for taking us out of Egypt. One one second. One step at a time. Every step of the way. Thank you for this and thank you for that. That's how we achieve gratitude when we recognize each of the gifts that we have on a daily basis. That is the song of Dayenu. And we move on with the Seder after Dayenu. We finish up and we drink the second cup and we wash our hands again and we have the matzah and the maror, the bitterers, and we have a sandwich and we have the meal and the egg and the salt water. And then we have the Afikoman we'll talk about soon. And towards the end of the Seder, we have the third cup and we open the door for Elijah the prophet. And at the end of the Seder, we sing a song, or many sing a song called Chad Gadya. Chad Gadya, Chad Gadya. Chad Gadya, Chad Gadya. Chad Gadya is written in Aramaic. It's definitely a few hundred years old, perhaps even older. Chad Gadya. Chad means like Echad. One Gadya is a Gedi, one goat, one little sheep, one little goat that father bought with two zoos for two bucks. And what happened to this goat? The cat came and ate the goat. And what did happen after that? The dog came and ate the cat. And then the stick came, the shepherd, I guess, the stick came and hit the dog. And then the fire came and consumed and burnt up the stick. And then the water came and extinguished the fire. And then the cow came and drank the water. And then the shochet, the slaughterer, came and slaughtered the cow. And then the angel came and the angel of death killed the shochet. And then God came and killed the angel.
That's the story. And at each part of the story, we say, That there was this this one goat, the Zavinaba, betrays Zuzay, that father bought with two Zuz. Now, this is not just a song to keep the kids up till the end of the Seder for a fun part, for a fun song. There's lots of meaning to this song. Who is this one goat? This is the Jewish people. And there are those that harm, or just like by Passover throughout the generations, like the cat who ate the goats. And we keep singing, Chan Gani, this one goat, one goat amongst the 70 wolves, the 70 nations that are uh, out to sometimes get the Jewish people. The one goat. But here's a question. Let's go through the story again. The one goat. Who's listening? If you're following along, you can put in the comments. If you remember that song, do you, did you sing that song? Not all, all families sing that song, Chad Gadia. But if you do, please let us know in the comments. Hello, Alex. If you sing another Passover song, every family has their traditions. Passover is a very family time. You let us know. Chad Gadia. So let's go through this. There was this one goat. So the goat was a harmless uh, goat. He uh, didn't do anything wrong. He's just living its life. Comes the cat and eats the goat. So who is wrong? The cat is wrong. So the cat is wrong. And the dog who ate the cat is right. Because why did the cat eat the goat? The dog uh, wants to do justice. So the dog is right. The cat is wrong and the dog is right. The stick who hit the dog is wrong. Because the dog was right. So the stick is wrong. The fire who consumed the stick is right. The water which extinguished the fire is wrong. The cow who drank the water is right. The shochet, the slaughterer who slaughtered, who killed the cow is wrong. The angel who killed the shochet is right. And God who killed the angel seems to be W-R-O-N-G. If you follow the story, every other person or thing in the story is either right or wrong because if the cat was wrong for eating the goat, then whoever punished the cat is right. Why did you go do that? You got to get punished, Mr. Cat. I'm going to eat you. And if you follow the story, it seems that God, Hashem, in the end, who punishes the angel, is not in the rights. Hmm. Tough question. Well, it's the night of questions. Here's one idea. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. Cat, the dog. You're right. The cat was was wrong. Why did he eat the goat? Source 10. A cat has no right to harm an innocent kid, an innocent child, an innocent goat, I mean. However, it was in no way the dog's business and he had no right to take the law into his own hands and mete out justice. This is a matter for the authorities. In Yiddish it goes, Du hunt, was mischt du You dog, why are you mixing in? This is a business between the dog, between the cat and and the goat, yes, the cat was wrong. But who asked you? Are you the judge over here? Who asked you to be the judge? Who do you think you are? 
all of a sudden coming and judging people, judging the cat. You know the story. Yeah, the cat was wrong. Okay. So the cat's mother, the cat's sister will take care of it. Who are you to mix in? And similarly with the Jewish people. The song is, t- is saying a message. There's the Chad Gadya. There's the Jewish people. Yes, sometimes the Jewish people were deserving. There were prophets as we studied other weeks. God warned the Jewish people. There was idol worship. There was discord. Um... Between the Jewish people, there were destructions, there was punishments. But no one has any right to harm the Jewish people. Even when they are exiled, the nations do not oppress the Jews in the interest of justice, but rather motivated by hatred. Okay, the cats may have done something wrong. Or in this case, the goat. But what? who asked the dog to mix in over here? Who is asking them to be the judges? You're doing it for God's sake. You're being. You're doing it in the in the name of justice. And sometimes, so so really, it's not about who the dog is wrong. Because why are you mixing in? So it ends up being that a, it's not about who's right and who's wrong. The, 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 it doesn't work. Just because the cat did something uh, wrong doesn't mean the dog has to go and be the judge. Who made you the judge over the cat? And similarly, this is a message for all of us. We finish the say there, and we're trying to take the inspiration of the Seder for life after the Seder. Sometimes we tend to be a judge. This person did this wrong. Maybe we actually meet out justice, we get involved, or in our heads we're a judge, and we decide how to look on this person, and if this person is good, is not good. Let's leave the judgment to Hashem. Our job is to be a lawyer. Let's be a defender. Let's be there for other people. We don't know their whole story. We don't know from A to Z. We don't know everything that happened. And if God needs to punish, God will punish. God will will, will do what He needs to do. It's not up to us. We weren't elected to be their judge. As the Mishnah says, Do not judge your friends until you are in his shoes or her shoes. Source 11. After we finish the entire Seder, there are those that say, a um, song, Chasal Sidur Pesach. The Pesach Seder, the Passover Seder is Chasal, is finished, is over. Look what we did. We went through the 15 steps and we're over. Huh. Now I can go puff and go to sleep as a king and queen. But actually, in many homes, as well as in the Chabad custom, as we do not say this, if one does, it's beautiful and they should continue. But what's an idea? Why would one not say these words? Source 11, in truth, we are never really finished with the Seder. As the process of leaving Egypt is ongoing, we are meant to infuse our daily lives with the remembrance that God took us out of Egypt, gave us His Torah, and mandated us to transform the world and make it a dwelling place for the divine. This is a constant mission. Leaving Egypt and once one level of Egypt was left, then we got comfortable with another level. And then we got to break forth from that Egypt and keep growing. We don't say the Passover Seder is over. The Passover Seder is an inauguration for the year. It's the dosage of, of uh, exodus, of freedom, of growth for the year. And we continue the inspiration, the message of Pesach. We don't just say we're over with. We're just beginning. That's another song. Mark is saying we sing Who Knows One. In my family, we also sing that. 
Echad mi yodea. I think that's a bit off tune. But Echad mi yodea. Echad elokeinu, elokeinu, elokeinu. Our God is one, or one is Hashem, one is Hashem, one is Hashem. And it goes through the numbers, one is Hashem. Two are the tablets, three are the fathers, four are the mothers, five are the books of the Torah, six are the books of the Mishnah, seven are the days of the week, and eight is the day of the bris, nine months of pregnancy, and ten are the Ten Commandments. And some go even further. Beautiful song to sing about the Jewish traditions, how it's associated with numbers. And here this she goes, um, Verken Selin, Verken Rachanen, Vosis, Ain't, Ain't, Sis, Deba Shefer, Deba Shefer is Ain't, God is one. Then goes two, three, we used to sing in Yiddish and English, and there are many other songs that many sing at the Seder, at the end of the Seder, Maybe we'll get to some of them a little later. Let's turn our page to the third section. The Afikoman, probably one of the most famous or the most famous tradition at the Seder. The Afikoman, the hiding of the matzah and the searching for the matzah and the prizes and the suspense. What's going to be the prize? Where is the matzah? Let's take a step back before we understand the reasons behind this tradition, not just the keep the kids up and entertained and excited. <clears throat> we had the mitzvah of drinking four cups of wine, the mitzvah of telling the story. There's another mitzvah to eat matzah on the night of Pesach. And that's why here in Seagate we uh, distributed hundreds of boxes of matzah with, let's show you a picture here. Um, Shmura Matzah. If you didn't get your box yet, we still have a couple of homes to deliver it to. If you need more, let us know. On the night of Pesach, one has a mitzvah to consume matzah, to eat matzah. Not just a little bite, but a nice sized piece of matzah Friday night and Saturday night. The first two nights of Passover, there's a mitzvah, a biblical mitzvah to eat matzah. Shmura Matzah. Kosher for Passover matzah. Uh, about a side, about a third or a quarter or better a third of a big round matzah should be eaten in a couple of minutes not just munched on but to be eaten what's called eating not just snacking and it must be done after nightfall Torah says on this night not early not a day before on the nights of Passover first two nights of Passover now on the Seder table we have a Seder plate called a kara, kaira, a plate with things on it, the shank bone, the egg, and the lettuce, and the charoses. And under it, we have the matzah. Says the Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law, Source 12, one must take the middle matzah. It's actually the fourth step of the Seder. We mentioned before, we, we skipped this part, called yachat, which means chatz. Chatz means uh, divide, half. One must take the middle matzah of the three matzah from the three place on the plate and break it. Before we begin to recount the story of the Exodus, we take the middle matzah and we break it. Why? Why do we have to break things? It's not nice the way the matzah is complete. So, what's the reason? 
the rationale is that the Haggadah, the telling of the story, must be recited over matzah, which is fit to fulfill one's obligation. Later on, after the Haggadah, we're going to eat the matzah. That the Haggadah, the story, needs to be told over the matzah. The matzah needs to be on the table, needs to be there. What kind of matzah? Matzah, which is fit to fulfill one's obligation. What's the obligation? Eat matzahs, the bread of affliction. The Torah says in the book of Deuteronomy, what kind of matzah should we eat? Bread of oni. Oni means affliction. But also, poor man's bread. What kind of bread? Not just flat, simple, plain uh, crackers, you know, just plain bread, uh, flour and dough, uh, flour and water, but poor man's bread, the kind of peace. What is the habit of a poor man with a mere piece of bread? What's the way of an oni of a poor man? A piece of bread. He cannot allow himself to eat a full matzah. You got to save for later. Who knows? Not like he has a whole stash. He has a piece of matzah. He has a little bit today. He has a piece. He saves a piece for later. He's not used to eating full things. Hence, the matzah should not be whole, but merely a piece. Reminiscing that we were in Egypt, we were like slaves, we were like poor, we were dependent on others. And the kind of matzah we should use to eat the matzah, to, to fulfill this obligation, is uh, not just, just matzah, but not a full matzah. It should be a broken matzah, a piece of matzah, like a poor man who eats a broken piece. Well, obviously, you don't got to stick the whole matzah in your mouth. Everyone breaks breaks off a piece, but the, initially when you're starting to eat, the piece should be a broken piece, not a complete piece. Therefore, when we say the Haggadah, before we begin to tell the story, we break the matzah, so the matzah that we're saying the story over should be the kind of matzah which we are able to fulfill our mitzvah with, a broken piece. That's one idea. And later on, it's that piece that we eat, whoever has the Seder plate, that piece is eaten, at least by one person, Fulfill the mitzvah of matzah. Now there's another idea. Size eating the matzah for the biblical mitzvah of eating matzah, source number 13. Every person must eat a portion of matzah as a remembrance of the Pesach sacrifice. You know, in the times of the temple, for hundreds of years, there was a whole other aspect, not just another, but a central aspect of Passover called the Paschal Sacrifice. They would take a lamb and they would bring it to the temple. They had, they had an offering just like they did in Egypt. And part of that meat was eaten as a dessert. And that's literally what afikoman means. It means dessert in like Greek. Or in Aramaic, it can be afiku man. Man means food, a portion, like the manna. Man means a portion of food. Afiku means bring it out. Like to finish the meal, oh, let's have the dessert now. Let's have the last thing. Because the Paschal offering, that meat was eaten as a dessert. Not when you're hungry and you're stuffing your face. You ate your whole meal and now you have a little extra. You're able to... It's a sign of uh, royalty, of, of wealth, that uh, you have so much meat, you can have more after the meal. You have some dessert and it's eaten. It's called alasova. It's eaten as a dessert. That's how the Paschal offering, the meat was eaten. And they had it in groups, a lot of details into this offering. So that nowadays we don't have that after the destruction of the temple. We don't have offerings, we don't have sacrifices, we don't have the Pesach offering. We have a piece of meat, a chicken on, on the plate to remember the Paschal offering. But actually not just a piece of chicken or bone or shank bone, whatever we have there. 
we actually eat after we finish our meal. Getting back to S13, every person, we eat another piece of matzah as a remembrance for the Pesach sacrifice, in addition to what he ate for the sake of fulfilling the mitzvah of eating matzah. This portion must be eaten after concluding the entire meal, just as the Pesach sacrifice was eaten after the meal, just like the Pesach after sacrifice was eaten as a dessert, as an afikuman, afikoman, so too, we eat a piece of matzah in remembrance of this. We don't want to eat meat because then it would look like we're actually having an offering and that can be problematic. We don't want to have anything to do with an offering when we don't have a temple. That would be biblically forbidden to bring up an offering without a temple. So we have a matzah. So first you eat your regular matzah and then you have the sandwich. Then you have the meal. After you finish the meal, you drink and you eat and you have a good time. Shulchan Orech. Then comes Tzafun. What's Tzafun? Tzafun is time to eat the dessert. What's dessert? After you had your applesauce or your macaroons, whatever your kosher for Passover dessert is, now it's time for the remembrance, to commemorate the Pesach offering. We have another piece of matzah. That's the afikom. So there's two matzahs being eaten. There's the matzah for eating matzah, and then there's a matzah to remember the Pesach offering. Now that we know these two things, let's take a look at source 14. The entire Jewish people connected these two things, matzahs. The entire Jewish people have adopted the custom of using the piece of matzah that was broken off for the afikoman. It is proper that this portion comprise the majority of the matzah because the afikoman is an important mitzvah, taking the place of the Pesach sacrifice. In Jewish ritual, we have many times that once something was used for a mitzvah, we opt to use this for another mitzvah. For example, times of the temple, the kohanim, the priests, had special clothing. When the clothing would get worn out, they would take it and make it into thread. The threads would be used for wicks for the temple lamps. Why? You can just throw it out. Because once it was used for one mitzvah, it was worn by the Kohenim while they were doing this service. Let's use it for another mitzvah to bring lamps, uh, to bring joy during the Sukkot holiday when they would dance at night. And many similar things like that. Um, we shook the lulav, the etrog on Sukkot. And many have the custom to use that to burn it with the chametz on before Pesach. It's a mitzvah to burn things, burn the chametz, so... Once a mitzvah is done, you make another mitzvah with it. Many other examples. Similar here. We have one mitzvah to eat the matzah. This matzah needs to be a broken matzah. So you got to break the matzah. So we take this matzah, which was used to break the broken half. So half we keep on the Seder plate to say the Haggad over, the broken piece. And then what do we do with the other half? The other half, oh, let's use this for the next mitzvah. Let's use this part for the afikoman. So we take this matzah. We take the bigger part because it's such a special mitzvah. It's the central mitzvah. It's the Pesach offering. And this afikoman is going to be in remembrance of the Pesach offering. So we take the larger part and we put it away. Why do we put it away? Source, 70, uh, source 15. We put the afikoman aside or hide it because you'll eat this matzah only near that very end of the Seder. And we don't want it to get mixed up with the other matzahs at the table. <laughs> Later we're going to eat matzah, we'll have a sandwich. And we don't want this matzah getting lost because this matzah is set aside for the dessert. So therefore we hide it. How do we hide it? 
We put it in a cloth. We put it in a pillow. Why? Because actually the Torah describes that when the Jewish people left Egypt, the dough was in a sack over their backs. So we do something similar. We take the matzah and we put it in a sack. We put it in a cloth. And we hide it away between the pillows or somewhere else on the couch. Because the simple reason is, this piece of matzah, yeah, we just broke the matzah in order that the matzah should be broken because we need a broken matzah because the Seder has to be a poor man's bread. And later we're going to eat that first broken piece. But the other half, the other part of the broken matzah, the larger half, we put aside and we hide it. We'll take it out only when it's time to eat the dessert. We don't want to eat the dessert during the meal, during later. It's going to get mixed up. We might not have any leftover. This is set aside for after the meal. So we hide it. That's the simple reason why we hide the matzah. And that's actually the name of that step of the Seder. It's called Tzafun. After you ate your meal, Tzafun. What's hidden, the, we take out the hidden matzah that we stashed away, that we hid away. Oh, nobody took it. Nobody ate it. Now we, we preserved it. Now we can take it out. That's the simple reason. So our 16, some have the custom to have the children find the hidden afikoman. And then this afikoman, the dessert, this bigger piece of the broken matzah, we have, some have a custom that the children search, they have a searching squad and they go around searching for the matzah and then return it only when they find it, they only give it back in lieu of a promised gift. Now this custom is based on a statement in the Talmud. Did you do that when you were a child? Do you do that in your home? Not everybody has this custom. <coughs> Some don't like to train children to steal things. Although, of course, it's a part of the mitzvah, but in my family we didn't do it. Maybe we did for a joke, but not officially. <laughs> and uh, many, many families have this tradition. It's actually based on a statement in the Talmud, we snatch matzahs on the night of Passover in order that the children should not fall asleep. Now, I believe the simple meaning of this statement is that sometimes we come home, let's say Friday night, uh, we start setting the table, schmooze a little bit, till the meal starts, till the things start happening, it, take time, it takes time. And Passover, we can't start early because it has to be by nightfall. This year, uh, 8.03 is nightfall here in Brooklyn. Can't start before that. Seder has to be by night, on the night of the Exodus, not early. But we want the kids to be involved. So we choytvin, it says, we snatch the matzahs, meaning, let's go, get the matzah on the table, start the Seder as soon as it's time. Don't delay. Why do we snatch the matzahs? In order that the children should not fall asleep. So some this say that this can elude, not some, it says in Shulchan Aruch, it says in Kodah Jewish Law, this custom is brought in Kodah Jewish Law, that some have this custom, we snatch the matzahs, that the idea of the snatching, that they're searching and they snatch it and, and they get a gift, that all is in order to get the kids involved, to keep them awake, that they should hear the story of Passover and so on, even though it's late at night, they should be involved in what's going on. It's not just for the grown-ups, the children should be involved. So although that is not the simple meaning, but it can allude also to actually snatching the matzah that the kids should not fall asleep. So this is one of those things that we do to keep them awake and um, involved. But there's a deeper message. As we mentioned, there's many layers upon layers. 
we have the two parts of the matzah. We said we broke the matzah. There's the smaller part, which gets back into the Seder plate. That's open and revealed. That's open during the Seder. We say the story over this matzah, this poor man's bread, a, a piece of matzah. Then you have the larger part of the matzah, the second part, that we hid away to be eaten later as dessert for the afikoman. So part of it is open, is revealed, and part of it is concealed until later. What does this represent? Source number 17. We have a beautiful teaching of Meir Horowitz, uh, one of the, the Jikover, Zika, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, the Jikover Rebbe's lived in the early, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, or early, 18, or early to mid 1800s in Poland. And he brings the teaching like this. Source 17. There is good you do that everyone knows about. The matzah represents our mitzvahs, the good that we do. There is good that you do everyone knows about. We come to show, we give charity openly. There's, pub, there's things that we do publicly that people know about. And then there are the good deeds that you do away from the public eye. We should do good without seeking attention, without needing to be recognized, without expecting any compensation or recognition. The two parts of the matzah, the hidden part and the revealed part, represent the two kinds of good deeds that we, we should do. There are things that are open. The broken matzah is open there on the, on the Seder table. Everyone can see. That represents the mitzvahs that we do the good deeds, the actions that we do that everyone is aware about. Perhaps our name is up there on the sign. Perhaps um, we do it publicly. Some people have a name on a building. They're they're beautiful things. Mitzvahs that we might do, helping out others that everybody is very aware. Newspapers say this couple gave a million dollars to the refugees, which is a beautiful thing. But there's another part of the matzah, the hidden matzah, the part of the matzah that gets covered up and gets hidden. It's done in a very discreet way. That's the mitzvahs that are done quietly without any need to be recognized, acknowledged. It's a secret between me and Hashem. I do it, whether it's a mitzvah to help others or a mitzvah of Shabbos. And not everybody has to know between me and God. It's between me and Hashem. It's done quietly. It's hidden. Not always we do a good deed as a business deal. Oh, I'm going to do this and look what uh, fame I'm going to get and honor and schar uh, in the world to come. I'm going to sit next to God and my face will be beaming. We do it because that's the right thing to do. That's our mission. That's our duty. That's the correct thing to do. Not for selfish reasons, not for anything. It's done quietly. It doesn't need to be done in the open. It's hidden away. Which one is bigger? Which part of the matzah is bigger? We said before, the larger piece of the matzah gets hidden for the afikoman. The smaller piece, you take the matzah, you break it in half, the smaller piece gets placed on the Seder table, and the bigger piece, the hidden, is bigger. Source 18, the mitzvahs that you do in the open should be only a fraction or less of what you do discreetly. 
The big stuff are done discreetly. Most things are done discreetly. Okay, it's also good to do things in open. Others can learn. It can be an inspiration for others. So most of our things, the larger part of the good things we do should be hidden. But there are some people who need to know your secret. Yes, it's hidden. But some people need to know about it. Who are those some people? Your own children. They need to learn from you. So they need to be made aware of what you do when no one is looking. It's not showing off to your children. It's educating them. Parent has a mitzvah to educate your child. You're educating your children that they too should do things discreetly and most things discreetly. If we hide our mitzvahs from our children, they will not learn to be discreet about their mitzvahs. So indeed, the big piece of matzah, mitzvah, of matzah is hidden away. But the kids need to find it. The message of the, the idea of the kids finding and searching for it, yes, it's your matzah. Your hidden mitzvahs are hidden away. Yeah. Small pieces on the table, open and revealed. But the most of it, the bigger part of the mitzvah, of the matzah, is hidden. Your matzah is hidden. But your children need to find it. You need to search for it and find it. And if they don't find it, tell them where it is. They need to know those things that you're doing discreetly, those good deeds, who you're helping this person, helping that person. It doesn't have to be on the front page of the New York Times. But your kids, who we have a mitzvah to educate, and train them that when they have the means and when they get older, they should do the same. And they'll hide their big matzah. And they'll do things discreetly as well, like you. But they need to know. They need to be taught. So to them, the children, they're the ones that find the hidden matzah. Everybody else, it's hidden. But for the children, they're the ones that search. Because they need to be let in on your secrets. I thought that was a beautiful message from Mayor Horowitz. One of the Jikover Rebbes. We move on to our final section. Being humble. That's what being humble is. We do the right thing. We do the right thing. This is what we're supposed to do. So we do it. I say a man, young man, on a, took out a young lady on a date. And he didn't stop talking about himself. One hour, two hours, three hours. This is what happened to him. That happened to him. Himself. Everything about himself. Finally, after three hours, he tell, he turns to the lady and he, the girl and he says to her, you know, I've spoken so much. Now it's your turn. What are, I told you what I think about myself. Now why don't you tell me what you think about me? With all about himself. We've got to put ourselves on the side. Let's... Um, Think about what we're here for, not what there is for us. How does the saying go? Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. I think uh, Kennedy copied that, changed it around. Okay, we're at our final section. Who is the, <clears throat> the central figure in the story of Passover. Of course, it's Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses. Moshe, the son of Amram, the son of Yocheved. Eighty years old, he stood strong in front of Pharaoh, risking his life, really, to enter the palace time after time with his brother Aaron, 
warning him of the impending plague after plague, tenth plague. Moses actually left his wife and two sons out of Egypt not to bring them into the danger. He really um, risked his life and, and really did a lot for the salvation of the Jewish people. He is the one that lifted his arm with his stick and the sea splits. And yet, there is not one mention of the name of Moshe, of Moses in the entire Haggadah. Why is that? Why is that? In the story of Purim, we say the days of Mordechai and Esther. In the times of Hanukkah, we say it was in the days of Matitziahu and the Maccabees. We don't start the Haggadah saying it was in the days of Moses and Aaron. Moses was a uh, central figure and yet he is not mentioned. His name is absent from the Haggadah. What can we learn from that? Source number 19. Talking about Moshe fixes the Exodus as a point in history. When Moses lived, that's when the story took place. But Passover is not about what was. It's about what is now. We're not just commemorating that on this day, on July 4th, that is uh, the independence and so on. What happened then? <laughs> this is uh, something happening right now. Passover gives us the power to escape personal bondages of habit and inclination. And every year, Passover teaches us that God can help us redeem others from their prisons. They may not be in prison with walls, but they have a cell, a cell phone. They might be imprisoned and a slave to um, certain uh, addictions or habits or whatever it is, comfort zones and so on. We each have a personal Egypt. Egypt means boundary. That's what the word means in Hebrew, Mitzrayim. And we each, on the Passover holiday, is an opportune time to tap into the energy present during this night and leave our personal Egypt by going through the steps of the Seder. So we don't talk about Moshe. It's not just Moshe. We leave our own Egypt. Moshe means that it happened then. There was a man named Moses and he took the Jewish people out of Egypt. We don't talk about names over here. It's not a certain person. It's, it's our story. Oh, we'll use the story that happened to our ancestors. But it's our personal story. Moshe was a very humble man. The Torah says it was most humble man of ever lived upon the face of the earth. How was he so humble? Because it wasn't about him. It wasn't about what I think of myself and what you think about me. It was about doing what God wants. I'm here, as the Mishnah says, Aninivresi, I was created, the Shamesh Eskoni, to serve my master. I'm here. I'm here to be a conduit whatever God wants to accomplish. Source 20, talking about Moshe, fixes the Exodus as an accomplishment of an extraordinary individual. Moshe was such a special man. He was a gifted individual. He led the Jewish people out of Egypt. But who am I 
Someone might think if we talk so much about Moshe on the night of the Seder, and one might say, who am I to aspire to change existence from patterns entrenched for millennia? I know my shortcomings and Moses' incomparable greatness. Therefore, that Gada doesn't talk about Moshe because God alone is the Redeemer. And Moses was great because he committed himself totally to God's agenda. If we now commit ourselves in our own re- totality, every one of us can be the conduit for God's transformation of existence from the bondage of all that is dark, changing our world to, into a realm of light. Moshe was the one because Moshe was totally committed to God's agenda. He was just there as a vessel as a channel for God's energy to flow through him, we can be the Moshe. It wasn't the accomplishment of some great charismatic leader. He couldn't even speak properly, Moses. He was just the servant of God. Evet Hashem, as the Torah refers to him, the servant of God. He was a servant. It's not about him. It's about Hashem. And if it's about Hashem, if we commit ourselves to that mission, we can do the same. We can make a change in our own personal lives, in our families, and in the world around us. <clears throat> After we eat the afikoman, we drink the third cup with benching, the grace after meals. And then we pour the fourth cup, we open the door for Elijah the prophet, pour a cup, a big cup for him, and then we say Hallel. We have a mitzvah to read chapters of Psalms, praising God. And then we drink the fourth cup. And we sing and we say, Leshana Ba Mirushalayim. Leshana Haba Mirushalayim. Leshana Haba. Virushalayim Lashana Haba Virushalayim Lashana Haba Virushalayim Abenuya Next year in Jerusalem, the rebuilt Jerusalem, we proclaim at the end of the say that the next year will be in Jerusalem. What's so special about Jerusalem? Yes, we want the rebuilding of the third temple and the coming of Mashiach and the redemption. The, the time when there will be a world of peace. and But it's more than that. It's not just the geographical location of Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents a phase. It represents a certain reality. Source number 21. Jerusalem is much more than a city. It's an ideal that we are struggling to reach. Jerusalem means the city of peace. Shalem, shalom, Yerushalayim, shalom, shalem means complete, means shalom. People are complete with one another, they are at peace with one another. But not just people between themselves. A place of peace between body and soul. Heaven and earth, the ideal and reality. When our body becomes not a prison for the soul, but rather a vehicle for the soul's expression. When we live our lives according to our ideals rather than our cravings. A perfect world, 
when everything is in sync and what we know is true, what we know is correct, what we know is ideal, that is how we actually live our lives. When the world values goodness and generosity over selfish gain, then we are in Jerusalem. We are at peace with ourselves and the world. And we wish that by next year, we should have advanced closer and closer to the state of being of peace represented in Yerushalayim. Shalom. We worked on it all year and we advanced. And as we come closer and closer to Mashiach's times, when then it will be manifested in a global way, this peace and this harmony, everything just being one and everything working together. This is our blessing. This is what we proclaim at the end of the Seder. So that is a bit of a, a behind the scenes or uh, an insight into some of the ideas of the Seder. Of course, there are many more things we do at the Seder. Hopefully this was inspiring, this was insightful. And today is Yud Aleph Nisan, 11th day of the month of Nisan. It is the Rebbe's birthday, the birthday of the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson. The Rebbe was born in 1902 in the Ukraine, in Nikolaev, and grew up in the city of Dnepro and... Probably one of the most, the more famous or most famous citizens of the Ukraine. Today marks 120 years since the Rebbe's birth. And the Rebbe initiated a transformation, a dissemination of Jewish tradition, of Jewish pride. Today here in New York, this morning there was a parade of 120 mitzvah mobiles known as mitzvah tanks. Uh, if you're in Manhattan, you might have some traffic going around. I think all the bridges were closed. I think it started close to 11.30, about an hour ago, two hours ago. Going out to different busy points around the city to bring the message of Passover, to give out Shmura Matzah, to lay tefillin with the men and candles for the women and so on. Give people an opportunity to do a mitzvah. So if you see them, say hi, send them regards and do a mitzvah in honor of this very special day. If you have any questions or comments, you can post them now. Otherwise, we'll sign off and wish you all a kosher and happy and zisin Pesach, a sweet Pesach. Sometimes it can get a bit bitter, not just because of the morrow, but because we have to clean so much and we have to can eat this and throw this out. So we wish each other a zisin Pesach, a sweet Pesach. It's a beautiful holiday. Get your family together to celebrate. If you do not yet have somewhere to go, join us at the show. We have quite a crowd coming this Friday night to celebrate together as a community with a full traditional Seder. And if you can share this post so others can benefit as well to have some insights for their Seder. Be well and... Happy Passover.